Welcome to the podcast ministry of Grace Anglican Church in Grove City, Pennsylvania. It is our hope to proclaim the historic faith and the dazzling grace of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Father, we thank you that we can come together to worship. And we ask that you open up our hearts and our eyes to see the grand vision of what you have in store. And we ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, a couple weeks ago, I began looking at the lectionary for this Sunday, trying to decide what I was going to preach. And if you would ask me then what I was going to say about Romans 11, I would say I have no idea. But then last week, some knuckleheads decided to march in Charlottesville and gave me something to talk about tonight. So we're going to be in Romans chapter 11. Uh, It strikes me that we are in a, a current climate where there's a severe power play in hand where we're all being told that we have to get our hackles up and fight. Uh, I am concerned over things I've seen the last week, both what happened in Charlottesville and responses from various sides after the fact. And I'm concerned that we're beginning to be in a cycle where one part, uh, one side uh, acts badly and another responds poorly and it just goes back and forth and all along. Everyone is going to be telling us that we have to pick a side. Well, I think that there's a third side and I think Christ has shown it to us and I think Paul is telling us about it and I think Paul is encouraging these Christians in Rome to think differently than the people around them. And so we come to Romans chapter 11. Paul has spent a whole lot of time in this book talking about salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. He has spent a fair amount of time in the past couple of chapters talking about his people Israel. You'll remember Pastor Andrew DeFusco was with us last week in Romans chapter 9, the first five verses. He talked about uh, Paul's uh, interest and, and sincere hurt and longing for his people that they would turn to Christ. And he spent a big part of chapter 10 discussing their fall and the early part of chapter 11 telling his readers that the Jewish people may have fallen, but they have not fallen forever. They have stumbled, but they have not stumbled in order to fall, meaning that God is not done with the Jewish people. Uh, Those protesters last Saturday were marching down the street, some of them saying, Jews will not replace us. Well, forgive me, I'm going to slip into my West Virginia vernacular. Ain't nobody replacing nobody. Okay? In the kingdom of God, nobody is getting replaced. And so Paul is speaking to that idea, I think, in this passage. And there's an irony here. Uh, In Galatians, Paul is speaking to Gentile Christians who are being... Uh, tempted by Judaizers to circumcise themselves and to bring some aspects of the law back into their Christian faith and actually become more Jewish. In Rome, he's speaking to a body of Gentile believers where there likely aren't very many Jews. And he's telling them, just like the, the Jews in Galatia want to make all the Galatian Christians into Jews, you Gentile Christians in Rome do not need to force the Jews to answer you on your terms. We're not in a power game in the church. 
We are not in competition with one another. So after he goes through some time explaining why the Jews have, have fallen, why they have for the time being been partially blinded and partially set aside, he, he enters into Romans chapter 11 verses 13 and now he's speaking directly to the Gentiles. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. See, John or Paul knows what's going on. Like he understands that there's an intrinsic thing within each of us to prove that we are superior, that we are in charge. And he knows full well that it irritates it would irritate his Jewish audience to know that these Gentiles are claiming to follow the Jewish Messiah. And they're doing it on terms separate from the law. And he's, he, he says he magnifies his ministry. He proclaims that he wants his ministry to the Gentiles to be known far and wide so that he will pique the curiosity of the Jewish people. What's going on with these Gentiles that they claim to be following a Jewish Messiah and they claim to, be, to have communion with God different than what we have? What, what are they talking about? And so he says he magnifies his ministry. For the intention of piquing the curiosity of the Jews to make them jealous, to make them want to know what's going on. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? He's argued in the previous uh, few verses that uh, the Jews rejected Christ as part of God's plan so that the way of salvation could be opened up to Gentiles. And he's saying here that if their rejection, and here it's their rejection by God, if their rejection by God at this time means that you Gentiles are being invited into the faith, how much more blessing will they receive in the eschaton when they come back to the Lord? They will, it will mean acceptance. Uh, it will mean, but what will it mean but life from death? You see, there's a temptation, I think, uh, within us to sometimes uh, rate Christians based on you know, how good and how awesome they are. Uh, and most of the time, we rate ourselves pretty high. Um, Paul, Paul's making a point here that these Jews who've been temporarily blinded and set aside, the day will come when they will, when they will return to Christ and they will receive the same resurrection as everyone else. And so we have no grounds there to look upon them negatively. If the, dough, uh, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so the branches. Let me read that again. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so the branches. The first thing I want us to see tonight is a prophetic vision. Prophetic vision of the gospel. What it is that Paul sees that he wants his readers to to see. Uh, he wants them to know that their salvation is not of themselves, but it is totally and fully a gift from God to them. And it had its founding in, the, in God's work in the Jewish people. The first fruits is a reference to a passage in Numbers where the Jews are told after the harvest to bring the first fruits of their harvest in the form of dough to the temple to be blessed and given to the priest who will bake it into bread and it will be eaten in the temple. 
Uh, he uses this as an example of when that dough is blessed, everything that comes out of that dough is blessed as well. So when that dough is given as a, sacrif- as a sacrifice and offering to God, it's blessed by the priest and then all the bread that comes from it is blessed also. It's holy because its root is holy. And then he shifts metaphors and he goes to the olive tree. If the root is holy, so all the branches that come out of it are holy. And his point is, starting off with this analogy of the root and the branches, that the Gentiles are holy, we are holy, we have access to Christ, not because of ourselves, but because of God, but also through the working that he did in the Jewish people. And so he wants, though, to cast a vision, a prophetic vision. In Zechariah 8, chapters 20 through 23, thus says the Lord of hosts, peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities, The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Let us take hold of the robe of a Jew and go with you because we've heard that God is with you. Again, in Isaiah 56, he says this. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. There's a prophetic vision in the Old Testament, that salvation will come through the Jewish people. And there is no room for anti-Semitism in the church. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. The Jewish people have formed the foundation of God's historical work. He has worked through them. And they are his people, and we have been grafted in. And there's no room, because of this prophetic vision, there's no room for anti-Semitism. And there's no room for racism. And sometimes we find ourselves in a situation where it's tempting to get defensive. Right now we are in a very heated time, and there are people throwing barbs at one another. I'll be completely honest with you, I cannot stand Facebook. I cannot stand it. People are throwing barbs at one another and going back and forth. And it is easy to get defensive. It's easy to want to get, an ar- to get into an argument and to win the argument. But there are times when there are things that are more important than winning the argument. And one of those things for us in the church is to speak with moral clarity. And one of the things that we must speak with moral clarity about is the prophetic, the prophetic vision of the gospel. Now, there is no one who will be left out of the kingdom, that God's people have not been forever set aside, and that there's no room for racism in the church. And so because of this, it puts us in an interesting position, doesn't it? Uh, It puts us in this position where all these factions are telling us that we have to look out for our own best interests. Uh, We have to fight for our side. But Paul would tell us, you know what? 
Sometimes you have to put aside what's best for you for what's best for the whole, for what's best for your brother, for what's best for the church, even if you don't like it. So where others have been wronged in the church, we have to be able to listen. Where we have been wronged, uh, we need to be able to offer forgiveness. Where we have been wrong, we need to own it or repent, repent clearly and without ambiguity. I'm giving you a lot of law tonight. Bear with me. <laughs> There's just no room for this. And we have to be captured by something different. We have to be captured by a vision that takes us in a new direction and in a better direction that calls all people um, to repentance. So Paul enters into the next part of his argument. He, he kind of lays the framework there in the first few verses. But then he says in verse 17, But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. He, he compares the Gentiles to wild olive uh, trees. The olive tree is one of the most cultivated plants in the world. It is probably the most cultivated plant throughout the history of the Middle East. But also in the Mediterranean and Middle Eastern world, there are these wild olive trees that kind of, they're invasive. They kind of grow everywhere. People are trying to, who are trying to grow olives for food are always fighting against the wild olive. It comes in, it wants to attach itself to the real olive tree, and it produces a fruit that's barely edible. And so Paul is saying to the Gentiles, before you become too arrogant, before you think, hey, um, we've received God, received God and the Jews have been rejected because somehow Gentiles are inherently superior to Jews. He's saying that's not true. The Jews are inherently superior to you because they were God's cultivated crop. He picked them first. But you, you are the wild olive that has been grafted in. You're only fruitful, he says, because you've been grafted into the work that he was already doing in the Jewish people. So do not think that we've received anything based on the fact that we are somehow superior Gentiles. Uh, we are not. Uh, we were, in fact, the wild olive trees growing outside of the plan of God until he grafted us in. He goes on and he says, um, then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. So the first argument is, we as Gentiles are inherently superior to Jews. The second argument is that there's something about my morality that is better. So these immoral, like these unfaithful Jews have been broken off so that I can be grafted in. Therefore, it's not that I'm like racially superior, it's that I'm morally superior. I've been grafted into their place because they rejected uh, Christ, to which Paul responds, that is true. Some have been broken off and you've been grafted in. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you, stead, you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. Here's his argument. It is true that some of the Jews have been broken off from the olive tree. But it isn't because they were morally inferior to you. It is because they were self-righteous. And in their self-righteousness, they rejected faith in Jesus Christ. So you have been grafted in because of your faith in Jesus Christ, not because of your morality, not because of your self-righteousness. You stand fast through faith. So do not be proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. 
Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. So there's a stark, uh, there's a stark warning here, isn't there? A warning to, to, to don't think yourself uh, too righteous, uh, but remember that you have your redemption because of your faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done. And if you do not stand fast in that faith, you too could be cut off. Now this begs a question that I want to take a few minutes to talk about. It's a question that I wrestle with periodically. The question of, can a Christian lose their salvation? Now, I'll be honest, I have come to think that that is actually sort of the wrong question. Um, imagine for a moment that you have a friend, and this wouldn't be hard for you to imagine. Imagine you have a friend, and, and maybe that's hard, I don't know. But imagine you have a friend, and imagine that friend has been a Christian all their life. You've known them for years, always been to church, always been to Bible study, always praying. They, they've always looked and acted and sounded like a Christian. And imagine that friend suddenly says, I don't believe this anymore. And he walks or she walks away. We've probably all had something like that happen. So there's this question that comes up. What does this mean for the eternal destiny of this person? Now, some people would say that, that someone, if they come into to, to faith and they walk away, well, you know, they were truly saved and then they lost it. Other people would say, well, you know, they've come into faith in the Lord and, and then they walked away, so maybe they were never really Christians. When I look at this practically on the ground as a minister, I say, I don't know how to tell the difference. I don't know if someone's in the Lord or out. If I have a friend who walks away from Christ and says, I don't believe this anymore, I have to take them at their word. And my calling to them and my exhortation to them is the same exhortation I have for every person sitting here. An exhortation to walk in repentance and to lean on Christ. That's what we have to do. Daily repentance, daily faith. Believing that our salvation is found in Christ alone. That, that is our work. Our work is to acknowledge that our works mean nothing. And that Christ's work means everything. And so Paul's warning, though, I want to be clear here. Paul's warning is not a warning about morality. I have been studying this issue a lot this week, and I am just not convinced that the New Testament teaches you can sin your way out of God's grace. There are a few passages that are a little bit tricky, a little bit hard to understand, but it appears to me that when Paul says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, and there's no separation for those who are in Christ, he means it. There's no condemnation, there's no separation for those who are in Christ. And yet, there are these very odd little warnings like the one I just read. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. Here's what I think the warning is. I think the issue is not so much about our morality. Are we good enough to stay in Christ? Because clearly we are not. But it is about the posture of our faith. Paul's warning here is the same thing he says about the Jews uh, early on in Romans. That they, having the law, became self-righteous and rejected Christ. His warning here is, don't become self-righteous. That salvation can only be found in Christ by faith. And he says, um, uh, provided that you continue in his kindness. 
His kindness there is a reference to the work of Christ and the grace shining upon us. We see something similar in some other passages. Um, Colossians chapter 1. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became minister. And again in Hebrews, which has a lot of warning passages, the author of Hebrews says this, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Another reference to what Christ has done. And so I see these warnings that Paul say not as these moralistic warnings that you have to, to keep being good or God will reject you. He's already said that there's no condemnation and we know that Christ receives back the repentant no matter what. These are actually warnings about faith. To not fall into the trap of self-righteousness. To not fall into the trap that says, I'm so good that I don't really need Jesus. I'm great. It's all good. He's calling his people to a humble repentance, to walk with Jesus every day. And so if you have a friend who says, I used to be a Christian, but I'm not now, you have to take them at the word and say to them, repent and come back. Christ will take you back. If you have a friend who says, you know what, I'm really good. You know, I think uh, I don't think that like this whole Jesus thing is all that great because, hey, I'm fine. Your answer to them is you need to repent and return to Christ. That's our answer. And so Paul looks at his, his audience and he says, don't, don't be proud. Don't think that you somehow are ethnically superior to the Jews. And don't think somehow that you're more righteous than the Jews. Because everything you have, you have because God chose to work through them in human history. And Christ came from them. And you have clung on to the robes of a Jew. And that's why you're saved. And so we can't out God's grace. We can't outrun him. And he closes with this. He closes with a superintending grace. Verse 23. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to grant them in again, to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree. If you remember what uh, Andrew DeFusco was saying last week, he was talking about in Romans 9, how the Jews had every advantage. They had the patriarchs. They had the law. They had the sacrificial system. They had the, the knowledge of God that superseded the Gentiles. And yet, even with every advantage, they rejected Christ and for the most part, walked away. If even they, who had every advantage, who God has every reason to be upset with because even though they had every advantage, they walked away anyway, even they will be received back. There is no way that you can rebel so hard or go so far that God will not receive you back. You may feel like the wild olive tree. You may feel like you're just kind of out there and you're invasive and nobody really wants you because you're not, you know, you're just a weed you know, we had this problem in our yard, in our garden uh, this year. Colt's foot. Does anyone know what Colt's foot is? 
I didn't know what cold's foot was until it took over half of our flower bed. It is a pain to get out. And we didn't want it. And here's the thing about a weed, particularly colt's foot. It almost looks like a flower. Like it's, you look at it and you think, well, maybe that's it. Maybe it's like supposed to be there. And then you realize it's, it's not. You may feel like that. You may feel like colt's foot. I feel like we should have a plant called like donkey's hiney or something. But anyway, because that would... Be, but you may feel like an invasive weed that you don't actually belong. And Paul's message to you and God's message to you is even you who don't really belong, you've been grafted into God's people through Christ and you've been made fruitful. And the rebellious, no matter how rebellious, no matter how much of your blessing you have squandered, you can still come back. You'll still be grafted back in. And so the grace, grace gets the final word, even in a, in a law-heavy passage like this. And so I want us to consider, as we look around at the somewhat chaotic days that we live in, that we're being called to have a different message. Not a message about winning not winning arguments, not winning elections, not winning the culture war. We have a message about grace and forgiveness and the need of mankind to repent. And that is the only thing that's going to calm this world down. I'm convinced of it. As long as we're all being defensive and all trying to win the argument, we're only going to make more enemies. We need to preach Jesus and we need to live Jesus and let that kind of grace permeate all we do and infect all of our relationships. And maybe, just maybe, we'll really impact the world. Come in your